Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God and that you accomplish things through speech. We pray now that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to understand and hands and feet that are eager and willing to do your will and your bidding as you conform us more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We pray that we be transformed by the renewing of our minds and that you would continue the work that you have begun in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, please be seated and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Luke, chapter 14. In the Gospel of Luke, there's really a theme of meals or eating with Jesus that unfolds, feasting with the king. Jesus is sometimes actually ridiculed for the people he chooses to have meals with and how he chooses to spend his time. And here we have another Sabbath, another meal, another dining moment with the king, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and another miracle that's done on the Sabbath. And in this context, Jesus also tells a couple parables. And parables, if you remember, don't merely describe things, they accomplish things. In other words, in the way that Jesus is saying these things, he's not just describing something, something's happening right then. Whatever the parable is about is happening in the context. It's bringing about the kingdom. Jesus isn't describing just some reality, he's bringing about a reality. The king is here. The the time of fulfillment has come in the person and work of Christ. Everything that all of the Old Testament and all of the Old Covenant was looking forward to. And when Jesus speaks, his words never return void. They're softening or they're hardening. They're bringing judgment or they're bringing salvation. They aren't neutral. And so when we read this story, you can think of it as a a dinner party gone awry. I thought about that for a title, but I thought, "Ah, I don't know. But this is just a dinner party that's gone awry. I tell you, I would personally be absolutely uncomfortable at this dinner party because of the tensions that come up in the text. And hopefully you'll notice them, but it's not just trying to describe a dinner party. Something's happening in this dinner party where those who are presumptuous about the kingdom are being found outside and those who are outsiders are being brought in by our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so let's listen together. Luke chapter 1, we'll hear the first 24 verses. This is the word of God. One Sabbath, when he, Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away and said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when they noticed, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him and He who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. 
Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, we have commanded what has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to his servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who are invited shall taste my banquet. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, if you were having a party and you were inviting Jesus, you, of course, would want everything to go very, very well. (laughs) And in this story, hopefully you notice that things don't quite go exactly the way that the host probably initially thought about. I'd like to look at three things as we go through this. First, the king's mercy, and then the king's guest list, and then the king's feast. The king's mercy, the king's guest list, and the king's feast. First, the king's mercy. In the context of our parable, there's a rising tension that has been going on between Jesus and the religious leaders. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, they have been questioning his authority, they've been questioning what he says, they've been questioning what he does, they've been questioning his miracles, they've been attributing them to Satan, they've questioned his Sabbath practices, what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, they've been questioning who he's dining with. Over and over, his authority has been questioned. So there's this rising tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. And they're even plotting, we've already read in Luke, that they've been plotting a way to kill him. And so the backdrop of this parable is another Sabbath and another meal with the Lord, and he's the invited guest at the house of one of the rulers. In other words, someone of status in the community, someone of station, someone of importance. They want to have Jesus over to impress their friends in one way, but we also find out that they have a nefarious plan as well. And the text tells us that. It says that the house, he goes over to the house of the rulers and the Pharisees, and it says they were watching him carefully. In other words, they want to get Jesus in a gotcha moment. They didn't invite him over just to learn from him or to worship him or to praise him or to have a good, honest conversation. They brought him over to try to get him, to get him to say something or do something that will help them bring about their plot to kill Jesus. They want to entrap him, basically. 
earlier in Luke eleven fifty four that said that they were laying in wait for him, like you would pounce on prey. And this is what they're doing. This is what Luke is telling us about what's actually going on at this dinner party. And so then the text says, Behold, there was a man before them who had dropsy. This very well may be a plant. They may have invited somebody in their community who has dropsy, which is a debilitating and difficult disease where it's full of, your whole body is just full of inflammation and swelling. And so they very well may have brought him to see, hey, is he, Jesus, going to heal on the Sabbath or not? What is he going to do? They're not really loving him or caring about him in his state of dropsy. They're using him as a prop. Let's invite him to our dinner party and see what happens. They're trying to lay a trap for Jesus to see what he will do. And Jesus responds to the lawyers and the Pharisees, but no, notice in the text they didn't ask him a question. He's responding to their hearts. He's responding to their minds. He is the Lord. He is God. That's humbling, isn't it? I am so glad that I don't walk around throughout the week with a thought bubble over my head. It would remind me over and over, our time of silent confession would be a lot longer, right? If, if I did, if we were aware of these things, if what was in our hearts and what we thought about saying was actually broadcast or available, imagine someone starting to respond to What's in your heart? And that's what Jesus does here. This is uncomfortable, isn't it? I'm glad that people can't respond to those things. I'm glad that sometimes there's a filter there that actually stops what I'm thinking from being said. But imagine Jesus starts responding to what they're thinking. And so Jesus asks a question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had already answered this question. And so we're really getting to know more about these Pharisees and these lawyers that they're not really trying to learn. They have a hardness of heart. They're being hardened all the time. Jesus had already said it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. He says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath already. And so he's revealing to them, or they should be seeing in their own heart, that they don't really believe him, they don't trust him, they don't listen to him, they don't care about him, they're trying to trap him, they're trying to trick him in one way or another. And the Pharisees actually remain silent. They recognize that they're the ones who are now starting to be lured into a trap a little bit by the one who is the king. Their lack of action shows their lack of compassion their lack of mercy, their lack of love for their neighbor, their fellow covenant member, this man that has dropsy, this debilitating disease. Instead of loving him, they're using him for their own ends to get Jesus. Hypothetically, if healing uh, was a sin on the Sabbath, which it isn't, then they still would be wrong (laughs) in trying to trick somebody else into sinning. Notice the mercy of the king. Jesus has compassion on this man who has dropsy. He takes him, he heals him, and he sends him away. It doesn't even say that he asked for it. It doesn't even say why he was at the party. What someone had else had meant for evil, God meant for good. And Jesus, in his love and in his mercy, he takes this covenant member and he heals him and he sends him away whole. And Jesus said to the Pharisees after he had done this, after he'd done a miracle on the Sabbath and healed one of their brothers in the covenant, he said, which of you, 
having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. Again, he knows their hearts. If any of them had had a son that had fallen into a ditch or an animal fallen into a ditch, they would immediately go on the Sabbath and do something about it. But here's one made in the image of God that they didn't do anything about. And it says that they couldn't reply to these things. This is the second time now that the text is telling us that they were silent. They couldn't say anything. And now Jesus is going to tell some parables that are going to expose the hearts, revealing whether one is a disciple or a pretender, whether one is a believer or a faker. So we look at our second point now, the king's guest list. Notice who the intended audience of the parable is. Sometimes when people teach parables, they teach them like they just fall from the sky and can just be used indiscriminately in any situation. But the parables are always given by the king and are always about the kingdom of God. And notice what it says in verse 7. It says, Jesus told the parable to those who were invited to the Sabbath meal when he noticed how they chose uh, the seats. They put themselves in the places of honor. The parable is directed to them, those who are sitting there and have taken the places of honor for themselves. So the parable really isn't Jesus being a first century Miss Manners and telling people, you know, how to throw a good party and how to have a guest list and what you should or shouldn't do. This is the king, King Jesus, talking about his kingdom and bringing the kingdom. As a matter of fact, there is a proverb, Proverbs 25, 6 and 7 said, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the presence of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to put yourself in the presence of a noble. And here they are, violating the scriptures. Here they are, propping themselves up as if they're more important or they're more honorable in some way than Jesus. The same man who they were shaking their fist at, saying, we will not have this man rule over us. And so the parable, on its surface, right, is saying when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, here are some do's and don'ts. Don't put yourself in the place of honor. Wait. Can you imagine being invited to a wedding, and you're an invited guest, and you show up, and you think, you know what, I think I'm going to sit at the head table. And you just go, and you take your place at the head table. Father of the bride's going to come over and say, uh-uh. You're at table 99, right? Let's get you back where you belong. It would be humiliating. You put yourself up there. None of us hopefully would do that, right? You wouldn't just go and say, I'm going to sit with the bride and groom. But imagine yourself at table 99, and then the father of the bride comes and says, we are so glad that you are here. We weren't sure you were going to be able to make it. Come on up. Sit with us. You see the reversal? See what's actually going on there? Instead of propping yourself up, you are brought to a place of honor. Move up higher. Here's an image of what it's like. So there's really a kingdom principle that Jesus teaches here. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We could say, well, that's just a principle, right? But it just happened, didn't it? The man with dropsy had just been exalted. And the ones who are priding themselves are being humbled by Jesus' words. 
This is happening right there. It's happening right in the midst of it. The humble are being exalted, this man with dropsy, and the proud are being humbled by Jesus, by the king, for their hardness of heart and for their lack of love and for their arrogance and for their presumption and for their pride. The ESV study note on this text actually says it's better to be humble than humiliated, isn't it? It's better to be humble than humiliated. One theologian noted how proud these men were of their perceived position. We're the important ones. And how hard they had worked to protect it. Their spiritual problem went much deeper than simply having bad manners. They were enslaved to their selfish ambitions. What mattered most to them was their public reputation and perception, how others perceived them or saw them. And humility is really a mark of a disciple, isn't it? It's not how you become a disciple, it's how you recognize a disciple. Humility expresses itself in ignoring issues of class and rank. God honors the one who befriends the poor, the lame, the blind. God humbling the proud and exalting the humble is actually a theme throughout Scripture, isn't it? Satan was cast, cast out when he and a band of rebel angels rebelled against the Lord. Adam and Eve, in their pride, were expelled from the garden with a promise of salvation, one with promise of one who would come and exalt them. Israel, in her pride and rebellion, was exiled from the promised land. Earlier in Luke, Jesus had lamented and wept over Jerusalem. As he was coming in, he said, How often I would have gathered you like a hen, but you would not come. In other words, they were too proud. They were too proud and too selfish to come to Jesus. Too hard-hearted to come. Pride often comes before a fall, doesn't it? Not just in our spiritual life, but in our life in general. You can think about this with sports athletes, with entertainers, politicians, religious leaders. So often we see that pride coming before a fall. We can think of the classic example of the Titanic. With someone calling it unsinkable. And then the tragedy that comes about. I'm not saying superstitiously it's because they called it that. But it's that kind of hubris or that kind of pride thinking that you could build or do something that is unshakable or unsinkable or what have you. But when your teammates promise a victory, guarantee a win, most of those don't turn out well. Pride comes before a fall. And so Jesus says, when you... Give a dinner banquet. Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus is not saying here, do not eat with your friends and family. So if you have dinner plans with someone here afterwards, it's okay. But if that's all you ever do, then he's talking about that. Don't merely do that. Or if you're doing it just for the sake of if I scratch someone else's back, they'll scratch mine. Then your reward is getting your back scratched by somebody else. If you go and are doing something, expecting something in return, that's kind of antithetical to the kingdom. Go and do it. Go and serve. Go and give. Go and show hospitality because you can. And because that's who you are as part of the new creation. And because you love. 
not because they're going to do something in return or you can get something back. It's not a reciprocity or a quid pro quo or a scratching each other's back. Just go and love and serve and do as part of the kingdom. And that's what he's talking about here. We should go to those who cannot give us anything in return and leave the whole question about rewards up to the Lord. We're actually even assured that the God who sees in secret will reward publicly. He says, as you do it to the least of these, so you do it to me. The way that we go about serving and loving one another and the way that we go about serving and loving our neighbors and the way that we go about loving and serving our enemies is, in some sense, the way that we go about loving and serving the Lord as well. It's amazing to think about that passage in Matthew when Jesus is talking about the last days. And he says that he gives rewards and he says that you, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And the disciples are saying, well, when did we do those things? Because they weren't even doing it contractually thinking, I'm going to do this and get a check mark with the Lord. I'm going to do this and get a gold star from the Lord. They were just doing it. And the Lord noticed that and the Lord sees that and the Lord rewards that publicly. And our lives are made new in Christ and that's what we do as part of the kingdom. And so Jesus is really critiquing his host's guest list, isn't he? So don't invite people who can repay you, your friends, your brothers, your relatives. In our society, what's the world's guest list? The rich, the beautiful, the powerful, the influential. But what is the king's guest list? They're people whom he can serve. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. All of those are ultimately images of Salvation as well. Not saying that people are poor or crippled or lame or blind because of a particular sin, but the reality of living in a sin-cursed world. So another kingdom principle, another kingdom reality is love those who cannot pay you back as the king did for you. You couldn't pay him back. You couldn't pay the Lord back for what he did for us. As we read in the gospel this morning, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead sounds pretty serious, right? There's nothing we could do in that state. We were hopeless. We were helpless. It wasn't just that God came and gave us a little grace to get us going, but God came and saved us in Christ to the fullest. He made us alive together. He regenerated us. He forgave us. He justified us. He's sanctifying us. He adopted us. He loves us. He indwells us. He's heading us home to glory. What do we have to boast about? Everything that we have is from the Lord. So as those who have been touched by God's mercy, of those who have been invited to the feast and brought to the feast by the king, how can we not also do that as well in the way that we go about loving and serving others? And so the final point we want to look at is the king's feast. We looked at the king's mercy and the way that he healed the man with dropsy. We looked at the king's guest list and now the king's feast. And this is where the tension starts to rise, right? You can realize that this dinner party isn't going all that well, is it? Some of us would have bolted for the door already. Jesus had insulted the Pharisees by healing on the Sabbath. Jesus had insulted the guest list by calling out their self-importance. Jesus insulted the host by questioning his guest list. And now a man tries to save the day, right? Uncle Charlie, fortunately, is at the dinner. 
And Uncle Charlie's thinking, this is awkward. What can I do? I want to redeem the moment, redeem the dinner. And so Uncle Charlie shouts out, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Thank God for Uncle Charlie. And that's true as far as it goes, right? Blessed indeed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Uncle Charlie, as he's trying to redeem the moments, hoping, oh, that'll put an end to it. We'll have another glass of wine. We'll be out of here. I can catch the Dodgers, right? But Jesus doesn't let it go there. Jesus challenges the confidence and self-importance of those who take it for granted that they're going to be present at that future banquet by addressing their response to him right now. If you're rejecting the king right now, you will not be at that banquet. Now is the day of salvation. Their hard hearts, their lack of faith in Jesus, their lack of love towards their fellow man, their lack of worshiping and recognizing Jesus for who he is, their lack of turning from their own sin and fleeing to him for salvation ought to give them tremendous pause and fear that they will not be eating on that great day at the resurrection. Jesus is taking a future reality and bringing it down to a present moment. We heard in our call to worship, Jesus say, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come now. You don't know what tomorrow may hold. But you know today. And everyone who comes and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So in this parable is, uh, in Jesus telling this parable, there's a great reversal. Those Pharisees and leaders who thought that they were entitled to be at this banquet are finding themselves outsiders. They're being judged and weighed and measured by Jesus and being revealed, and they're being humbled, and then others are being brought in. There's a great reversal going on here. There's dangerous assumption and self-satisfaction when we think me and all the religiously respectable people I know deserve a place at this feast. Like, it's easy to do, doesn't it? I went to the right church, I had the right pedigree, I did whatever. That's not how. That's not how we come into or are brought into the kingdom. Many times people today, even in our society, even in our circles, make assumptions. I deserve to be there or I will for sure be there. If you've come to him in faith and repentance, you should be assured that you're there. But if you think it's there because of some pedigree or because of something else, then you're mistaken. And Jesus says, a man gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. He's telling a really normal practice in the day as if we had a wedding and you had RSVP'd. So we already know the guest list and who's coming. We're working out the seating chart. And then on the day of the event, on the day of the wedding, people don't show up. And the text says they all alike began to make excuses. They knew when it was, they knew what was coming, they knew the event. It wasn't like they announced at 3 o'clock Friday afternoon that at 4 o'clock we're getting married and hope you can come. This was months ahead of time. June 6th, 
we're getting married. Can you come? RSVP. And people had RSVP'd saying that they'll come. And then on the day of, the first says, makes an excuse. He says, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please may I be excused. This may sound pious, but it's really a lame excuse. It's putting business, he's kind of posturing himself, putting business before pleasure. But it's lame because no one buys a field without examining it first. The way that we should read and understand these, these are all lame. If you invited me to your, your wedding or your child's graduation, and I said I was going to come, and then that day I called you or texted you and said, hey, I can't come today, I just bought a field. Hopefully you think, ooh, that's pretty lame. And it is. And the next one makes a lame excuse. I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. This sounds pious too, right? I have pressing responsibilities. I'm an important person. But he said, I can't go to your daughter's wedding because I've got to change the oil in my Audi. I'll change the oil later. If you knew me, you'd know I couldn't change the oil in my Audi. I'd have to have someone else do it anyway, right? It's lame. Third, the classic excuse, right? I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. I'd love to come, but the missus. This is lame. This is Adam's excuse. Blame shifting. I'd love to, but you know. Note the third one doesn't even ask to be excused, as the others did. The first two said, please may I be excused. This one doesn't even ask. Right? It's not that any of these things are not important. Right? Taking care of a field that you bought, taking care of your oxen, and being with your spouse are very important things. But they're not more important than responding to the king when he calls you to come. They're being distracted to death. We're to seek first the kingdom. This kind of rejection or refusal in the first century would have been unbelievably rude. So much so that some even say it's almost like a declaration of war. That might be overstating it a bit, but I want to press upon us the seriousness of it. It's not just, oh yeah, hey, sorry you couldn't make it. In the day, if you said, I'm going to be there, and you didn't show and you made an excuse for that, that is insulting. And that's what's happening to Jesus. They're refusing to come. They're shaking their fist at him. They're trying to get him. They're trying to trap him. They're plotting his death. We will not have this man rule over us. Insulting, rejecting the king, rejecting the kingdom. And so here in the parables in the text, we see the unexpected nature of God's kingdom, don't we? There's a radical reversal. The proud and arrogant are being humbled, and the humble are being exalted. It invites us to ask, you know, what, well, what's the kingdom like? It reminds us of a couple other parables of Jesus when at the climax of the parable, there's a question that's asked. You might remember the parable of the wicked tenants when the owner of a vineyard had sent servant after servant to collect from the tenants and they had beat them or they had stoned them or lopped off a head and killed some of them. And then he finally says, well, I'm going to send a son. Surely they'll respect my son. And he sends his son, and they kill him and throw him outside of the garden. 
talking about rejecting Jesus. And the question in the parable says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? It says he will destroy those who rejected the son and he will give the kingdom to others. In the same way, we see that radical reversal in the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son insulted his father. He squandered all of the goods. He basically said, I, don't, I wish you were dead. I'd rather have my inheritance now than you. And he runs away, spends his life in reckless living, realizes, I want to go back. And he's planning in his head what he's going to say. And he's going to not even want to be back as a son, but just as a servant. Can I just serve? And before he can even get it out, his father's running to him and embraces him. That's the nature of the kingdom. That's the radical reality of God's grace and seeking and finding and showering down mercy upon those who don't deserve it. The parable is highlighting the readiness and determination of the host to fill a table. Not necessarily even to harp on the no-shows. But the text is highlighting his mercy and his grace and his hospitality and his love and his radical generosity. He says, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes and the cities and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant says, sir, we've done that and there's still room. And then hear the heart of the king, hear the heart of our Lord. It says, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. There's not going to be one empty seat at the banquet of the Lord when the king returns. Not one. It will be filled. He will ensure. And to go and tell to the poor, the cripple, the lame, Beloved, I hope you see that that's us. Who are we in this parable? We're the ones who are blind and could not see. We are the ones who are lame. We are the ones who crippled. We are the ones who poor. We were the ones who had someone come and generously and mercifully give us riches beyond our wildest imagination to cause us to walk in his ways, to allow us to see who Jesus is. Those weren't achievements on our part. They were gifts by the king. The church is really an island of misfit toys, isn't it? The poor, crippled, lame. Not many of us are well-known. Not many of us are wise. Not many of us are powerful. We're just people. Sinful people that God had mercy upon. The king and the kingdom have come. The one telling the parable is the one who actually humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Ephesians 2, 1 through 11 talks about how Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but came down and emptied himself by taking on humanity, by entering into our sin-cursed world and paying the penalty for our sins, for all of our pride, for all of our self-importance, for all of our arrogance, for all of our lack of love. Jesus took the penalty upon himself. That's remarkable to think about. And his life of perfectly loving, of perfectly obeying, of perfectly serving is credited to our account as if we had done it ourselves. The king is actually on his way to the cross at that time to humble himself. And he's exalted by the father at the right hand. And everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. You know, John the Baptist 
was confused about the kingdom one time because he was in prison. He had been the forerunner of Christ. He had been the one to baptize our Lord and Savior and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the world wasn't looking like what John the Baptist thought it would look like when the Savior comes. And so from a prison, he says, Please go ask him. Go ask Jesus, Are you the one or should we expect another? And what was Jesus' reply? How will you know when the kingdom has come? Well, the lame will walk. The blind will see and the poor will have good news preached to them. And Jesus was doing that. Jesus has come. The guest who asked the question was Uncle Charlie, right, was thinking about a future reality. And Jesus is talking about a present moment. What we do now, what we believe now, echoes in eternity. Today is the day of salvation. Come. Every one of you who have come, you've repented of your sins and you're looking to Christ as your Savior, then you should be comforted and you should be assured that you are his now and forever. But if you're sitting here this morning and you're rejecting the king, if you're a no-show at the invitation, if you're a hearer but not a doer, one who possesses faith but doesn't possess faith, if you're distracted or uninterested or indifferent or lazy or procrastinating and coming, then this parable serves as a warning to you. Don't assume that it will be well with you at the end if you don't come today. He's saying come. The audience would have found this story somewhat comical with respect to these excuses until they realized that Jesus was talking about their reception of him and their refusal to come. Right? The story is not so much about the kingdom, but the reality that the kingdom has come. And so come, he says. Come. And everyone who comes will be saved. And even now, he's calling us again, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you want assurance that I am for you? Here's my body broken for you. Here's my blood shed for you. And he uses this to nourish us and to comfort us and to remind us that we are his now and always. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being gathered together before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it never returns void. We pray that it will accomplish everything that you have set out for it to accomplish in our lives, even this morning. Pray that you would comfort us, that you would encourage us, ask that you would sanctify us. We pray that you would chasten us where we need to be chastened and discipled, uh, disciplined as well, Father. We pray that we'd be assured by your goodness and kindness towards us in Christ. And we thank you now for the opportunity to come to this table and to receive from you that which you have to nourish our bodies and souls unto everlasting life. In Christ's name, washed in his blood and clothed in his robe of righteousness and indwelt by your spirit, we pray. Amen.